Well, tonight we get a short parable and then a very long chapter. The parable is uh, comes out of chapter 15, which is the shortest chapter in the book of Ezekiel, followed by chapter 16, which is the longest chapter in the book of Ezekiel, and is actually longer than some minor prophets. But here we're seeing that he's talking about in the parable what is a vine good for except for giving fruit. There's absolutely nothing else a vine is good for. He said, can you use its wood? There's nothing useful in its wood. So if the vine does not give fruit, there's absolutely no reason to have the vine. And so in the parable, we see what happens to vines who don't produce fruit. Last week we were looking at Ezekiel 14 with idols in the heart. Not last week, two weeks ago. So we saw some things we can check out to see if there's an idol in me. Are you willing to compromise spiritual truths for the thing that might be an idol? Will hindrances to it send you into a rage-filled anger? Does it have more value than people? And does it move you closer to God or further away? Those are some of the things we can ask because we see that God has a different classification for idolatry than just about any other sin. In this particular chapter, let's start reading here in verse 1, Ezekiel 15. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch, which is among the trees of the forest, is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? Instead, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it is whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? And if you've seen a vine, you know that it is basically a, it is wood. It is not just uh, plant material. There is actually wood in there. But it's extraordinarily flexible. It'll move around. So you can't even make a peg out of it. That's the most basic of things. You can make uh, something from wood, a peg. But he says, not. Nah, can't even do that. So if the vine is not producing fruit, all you're going to do is burn it. Just, just take it out. And that's uh, in this parable, that's basically what he's calling Israel. You're a vine that's not producing any fruit. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. So as the wood is useless, so is Israel. They are useless if they're not producing fruit. Now this is about those that inhabit the city of Jerusalem. And of course Jerusalem would be representative of of Israel at that time. He says the land and the city basically will be made Desolate. So that's his parable that he gives them. Then he goes on into chapter 16. This is uh, all of 63 verses long. We're not going to cover them all here today, but we're going to cover um, about half of it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. 
Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Now he's speaking about the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, was founded before Israel came into the land. Jerusalem was already there. We saw Jerusalem back in in the uh, book of Genesis as the city of Salem. And it eventually got changed to to Jerusalem. But its name, Jerusalem, was was done by the people who had inhabited it then, which here in this passage he calls the Amorites and the Hittites. Now they are some of the nations, I believe there's seven total nations in the land of Canaan that are named, and these are, are two of them. But they're the ones who said they gave birth to Jerusalem. And it says Jerusalem has committed abominations. Now they know what they've done. The prophets have come and condemned it. But Ezekiel is still told to make them know their abominations. So they've heard words against it. They know the evil that they've done. But still, he says, go in there and make them know their abominations. Now the prophecy is directed at the city. But a city is only a city if it had people. If you have a city without people, that city will never be on the map. The only thing that puts a city on the map is it has to have people. Now, it may not have people now, but it has to at one time had a lot of people in it, or at least what is considered a lot of people. You're not going to get a village to be raised up to the level of the city. But we have cities that have gone away. Sodom is one of those cities that have gone away. Gomorrah, they have gone away. Um, other cities have, have vanished before us, but we remember them because of the people that were in there. Now, a lot of times a city will take on a personality and the people that inhabit it seem to adopt themselves to that personality. We talked about this before. You you think of New York and there's a certain personality of things that go along with with there in New York. It seems that when new people move in, they begin to adopt the, the attitudes of the people that are already there. Philadelphia has its traits, different from New York. And... When people move into the area, they may not have had those traits, but once they move in, they uh, can oftentimes take on the, the traits of that city and the things that they they do. We look at uh, you look at sports fans. When you have sports fans of a particular city, they're always talking about how these sports fans are always this way, and they always go in a in a certain direction. And that's because the people that come in there they seem to fall in line with the people that are already there, and they adopt a lot of those thinkings. Now, we're supposed to be of the city of the New Jerusalem. So when we come into a city, we're not supposed to pick up the the traits of that city. We're supposed to maintain the traits of our own city, which is the New Jerusalem. But not all Christians do that. And here we see that Jerusalem had been a city of idolatry. Israel came in and they were supposed to uh, rid the idolatry from here. Now, when Joshua came in, he didn't conquer Jerusalem. Jerusalem stayed unconquered. Stayed unconquered all through the time of the judges. And then uh, Saul was supposed to be taking over more of these areas. He didn't take Jerusalem. You all know who took Jerusalem. Now that would be David. David is the one who came in and, and drove the the Hittites specifically are, are mentioned. But I believe the Amorites were in there as well. Probably some other, some other nations. But he talks about the birth of this city it calls the, the Amorites as the father and your mother as a Hittite. Now, uh, the Hittites are fairly well known in, in Scripture. We see them show up with Esau. He married two Hittite women. 
That's over in Genesis 26:34. Uh, put the references of these things in your outline if you ever want to go back and take a look at those. And we know that displeased his parents. They didn't like the fact that he married the, the Hittites. But he was at ease enough with them that uh, to enter into a courtship with them. Uriah is probably one of the most favorite Hittites. He's in David's army. That's in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 3. The uh, kings of the Hittites traded with Solomon and gave their daughters to him in marriage. But the last time we hear them is uh, as possible allies is uh, possible allies of the kings of Judah is in 2 Kings 7, 6. I'm going to read this. I didn't tell Daryl to put it up on the screen. I was just going to read this for you. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of the chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. <clears throat> this was in the days of, a, of Elisha. So they, the kings of the Hittites were still around at that time. They weren't wiped out. They were supposed to be, but Israel had not done that. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, and Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 8, we see that they are still in the list of nations. We're looking at the nations of the, the Canaanites. After that, they disappear from history. They're gone. We have no more references to them in the Bible or outside the Bible. That is the last mention of the Hittites we have is Ezra chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 9. In fact, they are so removed from history that all memory of them is gone. And people think that the Bible is wrong because it talks about the Hittites as a strong group of people and yet there is no record of them in history. They were gone. The only record we had of them in history was what the Bible told us of the Hittites. It wasn't until sometime later that the discovery and a decipher of uh, Egyptian records had shown that the Hittites were around and that they were a mighty nation. Up until they found that, there were many people who thought the Bible was false and taught wrong things because the Hittites were in there. Now, of course, we don't. We're believers. If the Bible tells it to us, we believe it. But there are other people who are not that way. And they would have looked at that. Verse 4, let's go on with that. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. So this is apparently one of the things they would do with the newborns is that they would, of course, you would have to cut the cord and then you would wash them with water, you clean them up and then you would rub them with salt. I guess that was a, some kind of a thing to, for infection, keep them, keep infection from coming in. And then they would take them and wrap them in the swaddling clothes. I imagine that's after they wrapped, they did the salt thing so that the salt could have its work on them. But he said, no one pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have companion on you, uh, compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. Now this seems to be that in Ezekiel's prophecy here, he goes back and looks at the nation of Israel. He does not go back to Abraham. Does not go to back to, to Isaac or to Jacob. Because this does not describe the state of Israel during that, that time. It would seem that he goes back to the time they came out of Egypt. Maybe even the time that they were in there when God said he was going to form a nation in there and he's going to give them the protection of the Egyptians. 
that they would protect them as they grew and, and would become a nation. And then he was going to pull them out. So he's going to grow them into a nation there and then pull them out. And so he's describing probably the, the uh, situation they were in either towards the end of their captivity or after they were uh, put out into the wilderness. No one wanted them. The Egyptians despised them even though they benefited their country greatly with the labors that they gave. And there was no other country that, that looked uh, kindly upon them. And as far as everyone else is concerned, they could have gone out in the wilderness and died. But God said, I came upon you. I saw you out there in the wilderness. And I took pity on you. No one else would even cut the umbilical cord as you were a newborn nation. No one even took any pity to you at all. But I had compassion on you. I saw you as a, as a young nation. And I cleaned you up. Just like one would given birth. God is looking back on this in this prophecy, in this way. He said, When I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. So God spoke words to them. And of course, we know that they did. In verse 7, I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. Now this seems to be the time of betrothal. In Jeremiah chapter 2, in verse 2, and in Ruth chapter 3, in verse 9, we see some of these things that are discussed. I'm going to read the Ruth passage to you. You don't need to turn there. And he said to and he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. So she's using the same terminology. This is the terminology of betrothment. And so God is, in using this terminology, he says, uh, no one else wanted you at first, but you know, you, you grew up and you be, you came into the time when it was, uh, time to fall in love and to, to get married. And he said, uh, I entered into a covenant with you. And, um, I covered you with my wing. He entered into into this, uh, as he called it, uh, a bridegroom arrangement. God was going to be the groom. They were to be the bride. In verse 9, Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and anointed you with oil. This is talking about the marriage preparations. We saw this in Ruth chapter 3. I'm just going to read this for you. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. And do not make yourself known to the men, man until he has finished eating and drinking. So there are marriage preparations that they would go through. Ruth talks about it. Esther talked about it in chapter 2 and verse 12 as well. We see that there are marriage preparations they would, they would do. And so God says, I took you. I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. He cleaned them up. Anointed them for the, for the wedding. Uh, verse 10. I clothed you, clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen, covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck, and I put a jewel, a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen, silk and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey and oil, you were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. 
Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord. So God took them. Nobody else wanted them. Brought them, brought them up. Got them into a place where they became beautiful. Other people looked upon Israel and said, oh wow, what a beautiful nation that is. And, and God betrothed them to himself. Dressed them up. Put really nice clothes on them. Put jewelry on them. Ornaments. Just decked them out. Gave them all these things. They didn't uh, provide on themselves. Israel was provided for. God did all this. It says, You were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. Now, don't think this is when the Egyptians gave them the gold. Because remember, that's when they came out, and God even said, they, uh, People despised you. And most of that gold, they turned into a golden calf. And that was, uh, of course, gone. But as they went on through and they conquered nations, gold and silver was added to them. And as the, the kings came along, uh, more gold and more silver was added. When Saul took the throne, the nation was fairly poor. And they didn't have enough to supply the army with, with uh, swords. Uh, and they were, they, they were pretty des- desolate, desolate from those things. By the time David comes along, he's ransacking all kinds of nations and taking all kinds of stuff. And they're just storing up gold and silver. We find out that uh, some, some things that were considered precious... Uh, they didn't even count them. They didn't even see them as, as uh, worth counting anymore. They had gotten so much. So this is probably under the, verse 14. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. This is probably talking about the reign of Solomon. Under the reign of Solomon, news of Israel had hit its height. David under David, they had reached the, the pinnacle of their power. They were the most powerful nation on the face of the earth during the time of David. Now, if you go to historians, they say that's because there was no other big power at the time. But uh, if they were, they would, David would have beaten them. <laughs> that would have been it. But David was the, uh, the most powerful king, had the most powerful army, and no one could stand up against them. And all kinds of people were paying them tribute money. And so all kinds of money came in. But during the reign of Solomon, we still see this tribute money coming in. He's not going to war. He's not conquering anymore. But people came from all over to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And we heard some of the stories about that. Remember the queen who came by and uh, was so amazed at the things that Solomon had to say. And all these gifts just to hear the wisdom that he had. She said, your fame came all the way out to me. But not even the half of it was told. So this is probably, verse 14 is probably talking about the reign of Solomon at this point. And then we come to verse 15. Here it goes down. But you trusted in your own beauty, played the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. You took some of your garments and adorned multicolored high places for yourself and played the harlot on them. Such things should not happen nor be. You have also taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images and played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. So all the things in the previous verses that God said, I gave you gold, I gave you silver, I gave you garments, I gave you all these things. You took those things that I gave you as part of our uh, betrothal, and you turn them over to worship idols. 
even the garments, the, the oil, the anointing oil that I used on you. You took that and you used it for these other things. And can you imagine taking the, the blessings that God had given and using it for such things? And that's what they had done. Now these are, this is going on in the days of Solomon. Solomon is the one who led them into the idolatry and other kings picked up on it and kept it going. And of course they made it worse and worse and worse. What you saw with Solomon was he entered into a lot of treaties with nations. And when you enter into a treaty in these days, when you enter into a treaty with a nation, it was customary to take on some of their gods and that you begin to worship. So if you had become a, uh, uh, into a treaty with Egypt, you would take on some, not all, but you'd take on some of the Egyptian gods and you'd bring them in and you would worship them as a part of your treaty. Now supposedly, the Egyptians should also take in some of your gods with that. But what we saw with Israel was they would take in the gods of other nations, but the other nations wouldn't take on their god. It was a, it was a one-sided thing. Now, if the Egyptians entered into a covenant with Assyria or uh, one of the other nations, I'm not saying that they did, I'm just saying that they would have, they would have swapped some of the, the gods there as well. They would swap daughters and sons and have uh, marriages go on and they would also swap some of the gods so that there would be an intermixing of the culture and the things that they would, they would have to uh, solidify this covenant that they had. So Solomon, when he brought in all these foreign women... Uh, it wasn't just so much that the, the wives convinced him to do so. This is actually part of the treaty process that would go on. And so he brought in some of these other gods. And they, Israel began to worship them. In Hosea chapter 2 verse 8, I'm just going to read this for you. For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. So Hosea, which is, came much before Ezekiel, he is prophesying against them as well for this because they had gone out and they had uh, taken the, the new wine, the oil, the grain, the silver and the gold and they prepared it for Baal. In verse 19, Also my food which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil and honey which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. So even the food that God gave them. God blessed them with food. Even that they took. And they set it before the, the idols in their worship. Verse 19, Also my food which I gave you, the pastry of fine flour, oil and honey, which I fed you, you set it before them as sweet incense. And so it was, says the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? that you have slain my children and offer them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire. Now here he calls them my children. He doesn't say that you offered sacrifices to your own children. He said you offered on my children. God sees these little ones that come into the world as his. And when people do things to kill them, when people do things, even uh, abortions and um, other things that uh, people do, the, the abuse that, that uh, some children go through, God sees them as his. And he says, you're doing this to my, to my children. You took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me. And these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children? Alright, so they bore them. But he said, you bore them for me. 
Verse 22, And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your own blood. They forgot where they came from. They forgot that God took them when no one else wanted them. And God took them. Then it was so, after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. You built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be abhorred. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiple, multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very flashy neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. Now, you remember back in the book of Judges that uh, people were ashamed of the behavior of the Philistines. That Samson had gone up and we talked about some of the, the ways that the Philistines would behave compared to the way that the Israelites would behave. Then it was detestable. And they dressed poorly and they, uh, they talked poorly and they acted in a, in a bad way. And now, Israel has surpassed that. So much so that the Philistines, who once had a lifestyle far below what Israel had, now they look upon that and say, oh, that's stuff we wouldn't even get into. They were embarrassed about it. That's really going pretty far. But they went from having high places in high places to having high places in every place. They just built them all over. Before they were um, up in the mountains, secluded. But now they began to come down. They built them right on the streets. They weren't ashamed of these things at all. And he said, you forgot where you came from. Forgot that when I came upon you, no one wanted you. No one wanted anything to do with you. No one wanted to help you. And I picked you up out in the barren places. And I fed you, clothed you, gave you silver and gold, put ornaments on you, brought you into a place where you were betrothed to me. And then the very things that I gave you, you used to worship these idols. Verse 28, You also played the harlot with the Assyrians because you were insatiable. Indeed, you played the harlot with them and still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your acts of harlotry as far as the land of the traitor, Chaldea. And even then, you were not satisfied. Remember when Chaldea first came over and Hezekiah said, where, where are you from? And they said, oh, we're from a far country. <laughs> well, it was considered far, but they're, they're coming. And the prophet, of course, told him, who, was the, who were those people? And he told him. And he says, they're eventually going to come over here and take your stuff. And Hezekiah was okay with that because it wasn't going to happen in his day. Verse 30, How degenerate is your heart, says the Lord God, seeing you do all these things, the deeds of a brazen harlot. So can you imagine taking someone like this? No one wanted them. Dressed them up. Made them beautiful. Other people began to, to look upon them and look upon them favorably. And then they began to go and to pursue these other gods and use the very gifts that you gave them. And this is not the end. He's going to continue on this prophecy and tell you even more lows that they went to. 
But this is the way God sees it. This is the way God lays it out. And of course, you remember the prophet when he was told, go marry a harlot. And so he did. He went out there and he married the harlot. This was demonstrating to them. And of course, she eventually, after she had married the prophet and came into a better life, decided to leave all that and go back into the area of harlotry. And he was told, go in there and, and buy her. And bring her back. Because this is demonstrating what the Lord would be doing. Well, this all started off with the vine not producing fruit. And of course, this leads us over to Jesus' famous teaching in John chapter 15. In verse 1, I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Now, pruning is never never pleasant. But the purpose is that God wants us to produce fruit. And so He's always in there tending to us, taking off the the things that are dead. And when you prune stuff off of a vine, you don't use it for anything because it's useless. If it's not producing, you just take it out and you burn it. Verse uh, 3, You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. God is interested in us bearing fruit. The reason he had picked up Israel was for them to bear fruit and to bear fruit to be witness to all the people that were around them. The reason that we are engrafted into the vine, the reason that we become part of the vine is to bear fruit. That is our purpose. If we lose our purpose and stop bearing fruit, all we are good for is the fire. That's it. So you can see how important it is that we bear fruit. If you got a vine and it's not producing fruit, what's it going to do? Cut it off. Throw it in the fire. Now we can imagine some things that fire might be. <laughs> it doesn't sound very good for us to be, be out there doing that. But our, in Galatians chapter 5, we can read some things about some about fruit. And we need to take them to heart. Because oftentimes we think, well, bearing fruit, all that is is, is getting people saved. And getting people saved is certainly a good good fruit and something that can be done. But if that's the only thing that we have for bearing fruit is getting people to turn from their wicked ways and to follow after God, then Jeremiah bore no fruit. Ezekiel, it seems, would have bear no fruit. Other people that were in the Old Testament prophet ministry, they bore no fruit. And by that definition, they would be cut off and put into the fire. But in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22... But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now we see the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about this before. is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That is the fruit of the Spirit. But these other things are outgrowths of it. If you walk in a divine love, if you walk in the love of God, you will have joy. One of the things that God wants to see inside of our lives is that we have joy. If we're going through Christian life and don't have joy, we're... We're not producing fruit in that area. We need to have joy. If our joy has gotten turned off, 
then perhaps it is just like it is with Israel in that we have pursued something that we shouldn't be pursuing. And we've gone after in a, a wrong direction. And the joy is gone. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. Now, of course, love, the basis of all this, you need to walk in, in such a way as to love people. If you've got people in your life and they're tough to love, it doesn't mean you just walk away from them. <laughs> we got to... This is a fruit. This is something that comes comes about. God loved Israel when there was nothing lovable about them. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. There ought to be peace in our life. People will look at our life and say, boy, they got some peace going on inside of them. If we're always agitated, if we walk into a room and the peace of that room evaporates, goes away, no longer is that a peace. People are on, on their uh, last nerve and on edge. Well, we have disrupted whatever peace was in that room. We took it away. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. We walk into a room, peace ought to come in with us. Now, there's going to be some people that are resistant to that peace. And you can, you can tell that in the room. But you got peace all around you. And you bring peace into that room. Some Christians enter into a room and drive the peace from it. That's an unfruitful Christian. The reason you got that way is because you separated yourself from the vine. Long-suffering. We need to get to a place where we stop demanding that everybody just do things our way. That everybody just be like we want them to be. Well, they ought to just do it this way. I'd like it when they do it like this. There's a, there's a long-suffering that goes on there. There's a time when we go on and we see somebody and they're not quite where they need to be with God. That's okay. We can suffer through a lot of that, a lot of that stuff that they have going on in their life because we're looking towards the end doesn't mean that we're long-suffering, that we just tolerate wrong behavior. But we find a way to be productive, a way to prune it, as Jesus does when He prunes the vine. He doesn't just cut the vine off. He finds a way to prune it. He finds a way to get rid of some of those things. See, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. That long-suffering ought to be there. I can look at that person and say, I can put up with some of those things that are in there because I'm looking towards where you're going. And eventually I'm going to come to the point that says, you know what, we've got to prune this off. I'm watching you have this for a little while, we've got to prune this off. And you get in there with love and you help them do that. We've got too many people that just want to walk in judgment. And they come on in, they say, you got this going on, cut it out. Knock this off. And there's no love to them. They haven't developed any kind of relationship with the people. They just want to come in there and, well, you ought to just listen to what I have to say because i got wisdom. And they just are, are, are harsh and nasty. That's not what we ought to be doing. Kindness. We just got to be kind. It seems like some people, and it, this shouldn't be among Christians, but it is among Christians. We go from just going about our business to being nasty, upset, and angry. Just like that. That should never describe us. We should never just be able to get so agitated on the inside that all kindness goes from us. And we start saying things to people, using language we shouldn't use, speaking harshly to people. Because we got into a selfish mentality. And selfish mentality can disguise itself as spiritual mentality. Well, they're just not living up to what I think they ought to live. They're just not doing what I think they ought to do. You get separated from the vine, kindness will be one of those things that goes away from you. He says goodness. Those things that are good. Those things that are beneficial. That when you come in, you can add in things that are good. 
beneficial. You come in and you add things to people's life. People want to get around you. They say, when I get around them, oh, they just, I feel so much better. They make me feel good. That goodness needs to be there amongst us. Faithfulness. Of course, we spent a lot of, a lot of weeks talking about faithfulness here in Sunday mornings. But faithfulness is something that comes out of our love that is in us because of the Spirit of God. I am faithful. I am not only just faithful to God, I'm also faithful to people. Don't let people come in and throw you in that area of faithfulness, being faithful to other Christians, being faithful to other believers, being faithful to your God. That is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Israel is even talked about in this passage. They were unfaithful. They were not faithful to God. Gentleness. Boy, I'll tell you what, sometimes we just yeah, throw out gentleness. Well, that's just not my gifting. I'm just a, I'm more of a bull in a china shop. Some people say, that's my prophetic gift. That's not your prophetic gift, that's your flesh. <laughs> We've lost the gentleness. Do you know when you come into a situation and you have the ability to act gentle, that's because it's coming out of the love that you have for God because you are part of the vine and God looks at that as you being gentle or you being fruitful. There's a fruitfulness that's in that. The devil wants you to get you to look at things that are going on that are not going on in your life saying you are unfruitful. But when Paul wrote these words, he wants you to see all these things are fruit. And we should be bearing all of them. We shouldn't just be saying, well, I, I specialize in peace or long-suffering. No, all these things ought to be coming out of you. It's not a thing that we pick and choose which fruits we want. This is what should be coming out. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We ought to be able to control ourselves on some things. And well, I just couldn't help myself. I just had to say that. Well, I just couldn't help myself. I just had to speak that. No, there's, that's not it. There's self-control. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. The people in the world, they just speak their mind. They just say whatever it is they want to say. What did Jesus say about the things he said? I say what I hear my Father say. See, that's self-control. How many of you think Jesus probably wanted to say some other things? <laughs> some other things came to his mind that he might want to speak out. But he didn't. He had self-control. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. No, Father, do you want me to say this? And his Father says, nope, it's not time for that. But our flesh can rise up and say, oh, but I really want to say this. I really want to speak this. Oh, I really want to do this. He ends this by saying, against such there is no law. When we take on things of the kingdom of darkness, we separate from the vine. And this will end our fruitfulness. Instead of being fruitful for the things of God, instead of being fruitful because we are attached to the vine, we bear deeds of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to see what you're attached to, come on back to Galatians. Because if you are attached to God, if your attachment to the vine is intact, if it's strong, if it's where it's supposed to be, these are the things you're going to see. You're going to see the love of God growing on the inside of you. You're just walking in more and more love of God. You just don't look at people and despise them. You look at people and say, Oh, Father God, you love them. You sent your son for them. And you, you feel that love. You feel the, the joy. That joy just overflows in you. You can't seem to turn it off. You're just joyful. 
the enemy wants to try and turn it off. He wants to try and get you to think on things other than being part of the vine. That'll cut off your joy. If you need joy, all you need to do is get attached to the vine. Get attached to God. Back over into John chapter 15 again. Do the things that he said. If you're attached to the vine, you're going to produce fruit. That's how it works. If the vine is fruitful, then if you are attached to it, you will produce fruit. If the vine is unfruitful and you are attached to it, you will not produce fruit. But God is a fruitful vine. And when we are attached to Him, we're going to produce fruit. These are things that are going to come out. We've got to work on that attachment. Israel forsook that attachment. They weren't walking in the love of God anymore. Their joy had gone away. Their peace was gone. No longer are they long-suffering. They're short with each other. Kindness is out the window. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All these things are gone. Other places in Scripture, they refer to some other things too. The, the thankfulness, the gratefulness. These are things that need to grow as well. He said, against such there is no law. The biggest thing we see in the fruit of the, of the Spirit, and the, the fruit that the Word of God is looking for, is the way we conduct our lives. How we conduct our lives towards other people. There are some people that you have an easy time getting along with. There are some people that you have a difficult time getting along with. But God wants you to produce fruit wherever it is that you go. Whether it's people that are difficult or people that are good. You're there to help them. By helping them, you help God. See, Jesus is not in this world anymore. He's not producing fruit in this world. We produce fruit for Him in this world. And the more we walk in the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, boy, that's going to attract some people. They're going to look at that and say, man, what in the world do they have? Because I want some of that. They want those things going on in their life. Now, a lot of times you're going to run into people who want these things going on in their life, but they don't want to do the things that you're doing. They don't want to be part of the Word. They don't want to get attached to the vine. They don't want to have that worship time with God. They don't want to do the things that are necessary. If they don't want to do the things that are necessary, they're not going to walk in, the, in what you walk. But you don't condemn them for it. You just keep on walking. If you want the things that I have, you've got to walk the way I walk. I walk the way that the Word of God told me to walk. We walk in the love of God and we produce fruit. And fruit is good. The only function a vine has is to produce fruit. So he starts off in this parable. If you've got a vine and it's not producing fruit, do you want the leaves? Do you want the wood? Is there any useful part of the vine outside of the fruit? Then there isn't. Do you know there is no useful part of a Christian outside of their fruit? Because we are the vine. We're part of the vine. And we're here to produce fruit. Be focused on these things. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. It should be something that's on the focus of our mind all the time. I'm here to produce fruit. Because if I get disengaged from the vine, these things will fall off of me. Sometimes we can become disengaged right away. Somebody walks into our life and they just have a way of stirring us up, stirring up our flesh. 
and we get disengaged from the vine, it's that the Spirit of God is not coming through with love and we start act, acting according to the flesh, well, we can repent and get back to it and produce fruit again. But for that time, we didn't produce any fruit. That fruit was gone. Stay attached to the vine. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We don't want to be apart from Him. But boy, when we, we are a part of Him, when His words abide in us, good things come about. He even says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Father, we thank you that in your word we see this way so so clearly for us. The enemy does not like us going into a way of being fruitful. He wants to take us in a direction that he took Israel. Down the road of worshiping idols, of taking the things that God blessed us with and using them in ways that you did not intend and it does not bring you any glory. Father, we can walk in a way that is attached to the vine, a way that is producing fruit. We don't have to think and concentrate on producing fruit. We just produce it because we're attached to the vine. Help us, Father, in this week as we go, that we focus on that attachment, that we do the things that are needed to keep that attachment going. Our time in worship, our time in the Word. But it can't just stop there. If we spend all, all, all morning, all evening, whatever time it might be that we get away, and we worship You, and we meditate on You, and we pray. But then when we leave from there, we don't produce any fruit. Then what we're doing is not attaching us to the vine. Because if it attaches us to the vine, we will be in joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. We'll have kindness that comes out from us to other people. There will be goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, and we will be in control of ourselves. We will never have to say, I just couldn't help it. I had to say, I had to do, because Father, we are in control, because that Spirit on the inside of us helps us. I thank you for it and give you the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.